You have found your way to part two of an interview with Tim Minutza. If you have not listened to part one, please stop, go back, and listen to part one. If you have finished listening to part one, please enjoy an interview with Tim Minutza where we left off. Thank you. All right, let's get into some of your own adventures. So you just got back to the States on a journey by foot across the Silk Road. Yep. Uh, me and two friends, were, we are attempting to walk across the Silk Road uh, in one go. Uh, mm-hmm. This was our second time. Yeah, our second round of going back because we had gotten stopped before and then we got stopped now by a pandemic uh pandemic strikes yep okay where does the silk road start uh the silk road is not a single road it's more of a philosophical concept so it starts uh everywhere in asia and europe and goes to everywhere in asia and europe it's really just like the trade networks Mm -hmm. that were going on and it was only named far later as the silk road in like retrospect looking on this historical concept of like all the trade networks going on Mm -hmm. Um, and there's also the maritime so like when people most commonly think of the silk road they think of like china to uh europe and usually like istanbul or venice or rome Mm -hmm. are the big places that come up to people's mind yeah because they were large capital centers on like the eastern side of europe at the time um or the southeastern but it was really going everywhere and it was happening for like the horse the horse cultures in the middle were always passing goods back and forth between the other societies or stealing the goods and then selling them and passing them. So, yeah, that's good. Okay. So it's a trade route from Asia to Europe, essentially. And North Africa, Asia, Europe, North Africa. Yeah. Okay. Um, so where did you start when you put the philosophical concept of the Silk Road into reality? We started in Xi'an, uh, which is one of the old capitals in China. Mm-hmm. It's where the terracotta warriors are. Um, and just like at one point, it was a historical starting point of the Silk Road mm-hmm. because it was the capital of China. Yeah. Um, and uh, we went west from there. And our end point had changed many of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most common is Istanbul. Uh, but like from concept to action, we've spent five years on this trip. And so like wow. Istanbul being the end point has changed many times uh, due to geopolitics and just like the situation over there. Wow. So we've already been banned from Turkey twice now because uh, of Corona, but also because of, <sighs> I can't remember if the first time was the travel ban that happened. And then I think so. And then Turkey responded with a similar travel ban right? for it, like a month or Turkey's two. Turkey's been going through political turmoil for a while now. yeah they also had a coup while we were planning it mm-hmm. that erdogan made it through and just like uh you know fighting with kurds continuing and like the war in syria having those issues and just like yeah. isis attacks going on there so turkey's been a often on the list often for our trip okay did you did you make it to turkey no we made it to shit kazakhstan and that's how it's pronounced okay um, yep and that was where we had to uh, get ourselves out from. We had like 48 to 72 hours uh, before the whole country was going in lockdown when we wow. finally got out. So That sounds like a rush. It was a rush. It well, was, uh, yeah. Let's get to that at the end. Sounds good. Um, okay, so you start in Xi'an. How many years are you, pl- or how long are you planning this? So we started planning 
Um, let me get try and get the years right. Started planning in 2014. Okay. The summer of 2014, me and Paul Ronan were in Minnesota Outward Bound, and everyone at Outward Bound had explained that like if you want to, we originally got into Outward Bound for the adventure, and then got there and realized we would never have an adventure because if our student. If we were having an adventure, our students were way over their comfort zone. <laughs> uh, like just we weren't running a good trip then if a good course, if, you know, we're pushing them that far that it's adventure for us. Yeah. And learned that like we were told over and over that uh, to like gain that personal growth that we really wanted and have that adventure that we needed to do our own personal trip. Yeah. And I think what they w- meant for us to do is more of in like a area that would transfer. So like kayaking would have been. Mm -hmm. wonderful but uh we just like had grand ideas and uh had a globe to look at so Mm -hmm. our scale was uh horrendous (laughs) um and uh came up paul mentioned the idea of walking the silk road and uh neither of us could come up with a better idea so that was the one we committed to right then and there and uh the plan was to plan for two years and then walk for two years and that was five years ago okay so it's been a little longer than yeah. So did uh, I guess six years ago now? Six years ago. Yeah, because it's 2020. We started in summer of 2014. You started planning in 2014. Yeah. Okay. How long did planning go? Uh, so in reality, I would say so. It took three years before we started the trip, and the first year uh, was basically research. Mm-hmm. The second year was planning, and the third year was preparation. And that only came about when we researched for a year. And we planned for a year and we were about to start and we really weren't prepared. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we were just like, we were, didn't have the money together that we thought we needed. We didn't have the gear together. We didn't even know what gear we really wanted yet. Like we were still very much uh, finishing the planning phase. Yeah. And so like we were crunched on getting visas. We were crunched on uh, buying our equipment. We were trying, still struggling to try and get sponsors and not having any success. Um, and then the third year happened when we postponed and that was one of the best decisions we've made for the trip because uh, we finally got prepared Mm -hmm. and we managed to get sponsors on board and just like a yeah it was it was needed it was a needed third year although it was uh, anxiety inducing and stressful when we postponed this trip and uh, everyone's like "Ooh, are you ever actually gonna do it right which was a very valid question because uh, it was a crazy thing to try and do yeah so what kind of things are you researching in the beginning uh, so one of the things that drew me to it personally was when I looked at the map, I knew nothing about the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, so we did a scouting trip in the summer of 2015 and I traveled just general backpacking tourist style from Istanbul to the border of China. And the wow. other two walking partners, Paul and Pat went from Xi'an in China to, uh, Kashgar. I think they went to Kashgar. Maybe they only made it to Turpan. I don't know. They scouted China. I scouted the rest. That's a substantial scouting trip. How long did that take? Uh, I think I did it in two months, which uh, was actually long for a lot of people to travel that area. Like uh, a lot of people just like plenty of people see Uzbekistan in three or four days. Yeah. Um, And uh, I had no commitments at the time. I had just graduated 
college and I had applied for Elements and Inside Adventures where they work in China. And I was just like going and uh, mm-hmm. eventually I came, I would have scouted the whole route, but Elements uh, offered me a training. And so I had to pop back in early to go, uh, yeah, get a job. You would have scouted the whole route, meaning you would have gone from Istanbul to Xi'an? Yeah. And then probably gone down to Yangshuo where Do, they live. Why does and- that not count as doing it? Uh, well, I wasn't walking it. You were taking buses? Oh, I was taking everything. Okay. Buses, taxis, trains. Okay. Yeah. So you're just getting familiar with like where you can find towns? Uh, just trying to understand the area. I don't think okay. I can really understand. I don't feel like I'm very much an experiential learner, and okay. I very much don't feel that I understand anything about a place until I've been there. Okay. Uh, and so like... I didn't know anything about Uzbekistan. I was like, can we walk through these countries? Like, mm. apparently the Taliban is there. Like, I don't know. Is it safe? Like, I see. Should we Should we go? Yeah. Um, and uh, so that was really good for sense of security and in our minds of just, like, getting an understanding of what these areas are really like, what this really meant to go do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also been cool in hindsight to return to these places yeah. and to, like, deepen that connection with the place and also just, like, uh, understand it better through time mm-hmm. of because Uzbekistan at least and Western China have changed a lot in the time since scouting okay. and going Western China being Xinjiang in general. So, yeah. Okay. So you found sponsors, so you're not paying for this entirely out of pocket. Oh no, we paid for it pretty much entirely out of pocket, but, uh, we found people to give us gear. Okay. And uh, okay. money is really hard to get. Yeah. So I sold a lot of my treasures from around the world um, and uh, a chunk of my magic cards. Um, and magic we saved up gathering. money for three years. Yeah, Magic the Gathering. Okay. Um, and uh, we got uh, Chacos from Chacos. We got Wintergreen pants from Wintergreen in Ely. We got Granite Gear backpacks. Uh-huh. Uh, they started in Two Harbors, Minnesota. Okay. Um, but they're global now. And we got ex officio underwear and shirts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we got a donation from Vermilion Community College of a bunch of MSR stuff. Okay. Uh, CSIS sponsored us, um, which is a uh, center for strategic information studies, maybe. I should definitely know that better. Yeah. Um, And they're a think tank that does, uh, yeah, that was interested in the Silk Road stuff. And so, like, they had us look at the highways and see if they were done or not. Oh, okay. So you um, had to, there was some sort of like follow through you had to do. Yep. Uh, all of these we had social media commitments as well. And then Inside Adventures uh, did a lot for us in general. And they're mm. the outdoor education company that my friends work for in China. They were like our true support okay. network. If there was any, any support network that we had, it was them and our support staff, which was uh connor and Catherine and delaney and mark and vivian and so like all of that help really got us going and on the, like moving on the trip in general wow okay so these people are working for inside adventures and like how did, how did they support you no they were our actual support staff okay, although so vivian you... is the program director or might as well but whatever that title is that's yeah. what she does okay so you at insight you paid a crew of people to be supporting you no they volunteered they volunteered yeah wow. there were our friends who just helped us out who That's uh, believed in what we were doing and uh yeah sacrificed a lot of time and energy and did a lot for us to 
managed to make it happen. What does that look like being a support staff? Were they like researching routes, dropping off food? Uh, so Catherine was basically our copy editor and she was incredible at it. And uh, me and her tried to work on getting grants, which none of them panned out. Okay. But she really made our writing much better okay. and helped us with those relationships to get sponsors and all that and mm-hmm. to look professional. Mm-hmm. Um, Connor came and started the trip with us and uh, just worked with Catherine on like whatever she could help with. And she was a photographer and there were hopes of making films in the beginning, uh, mm-hmm. which have shifted in general. And so she was doing a lot with that. And Delaney uh, is basically special projects. She uh, is a artist and helped us with graphics in that. We also had support from Hansi, which is a graphic design company. And uh, Susie there designed our logo which is a foot with the silk lock with it. And so, yeah, we had a lot of support along the way. And then Mark and Vivian were our, uh, our trip directors. Mm -hmm. So they were like, uh, the people who we had to call in case we started hating each other or just needed someone to talk to outside of it or just like, you know, try and keep us on track mentally and be there as a support in general. Okay. Was that a mental struggle throughout? Uh, uh, definitely, definitely different times, uh, like working together in close proximity with Mm -hmm. other humans is always a challenge. And when you do it nonstop for a really long time about something that you all care very deeply about, Mm -hmm. like uh, inevitably, like you have different ideas of how you want it to happen and, uh, you can only clarify vision so much, uh, before you get there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it was, you know, working with people is always a roller coaster and, uh just like anywhere else but our priorities for me from the very get-go was like uh safety friendship expedition and uh i struggled to keep them in line definitely during different points of it and just like having those priorities to uh evaluate my actions and decisions at different times helped realign it to be like yeah the friendship is more important than the expedition itself all of us Mm -hmm. went to community college together in minnesota so that's where you knew each other yeah Okay, so you start in Xi'an after three years of researching? Yep. Wow. Well, one one year of research, one year of planning, one year of preparation. Okay. Distinct things. Yeah. Um, and planning is like route planning, food planning. Yeah, our route pl- our plans were we way over planned. And okay. uh, yeah, Pat would definitely view it as way over planning. And me and Paul love planning. So we planned contingency after contingency after contingency. <laughs> and we had like every day, we had more or less a day plan for uh, maybe like, I don't know, like if you combined all the different little sections we had together, you maybe had like 14 variations of our route mm-hmm. overall because wow. every fork in the road led to another fork in the road, which were different options yeah uh based off what was going on at the time yeah um and so the route was uh flexible just like it's always been in time based off season and political wow so you planned you planned down to like what turn to take on what day yep it if a wasn't an option yeah which was way over the top um but it was really fun and it got us to know the area a lot better. And because of all of those drills in my mind, mm-hmm. uh, when it actually came to it and we had to do planning, like it was so fast and easy Yeah. Uh, while we were on the ground because we had done so much practice. Okay. What yeah. does preparation look like outside of getting sponsors? I mean, what kind of gear and like food pl- prepping was necessary? 
So originally our hope was to do it, or at least my hope was to do it with pack animals okay. um, for the sections that we would need them mm-hmm. uh, because it just felt more true yeah, and realistic. Uh, well, not realistic, but true. Right. Um, so like camels for the deserts and donkeys for the mountains. Uh, in reality, those are really expensive and we would have needed to go get some camel experience somewhere right. beforehand. Um, and so we went for instead walking trailers. Mm-hmm. which uh, would were much cheaper in the end. Uh, they're basically really fancy baby strollers designed for the Camino uh, that we pushed along the highway um, to carry water and food to get us through deserts and mountains. Wow. How much weight are you having? Can you carry in one of those? Oh, uh, you can carry a lot more weight than they say you can, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> especially if it's on a nice road. Uh, but we also broke bolts a couple times. Okay. Um, wow. And... Sh- also, the frame, at least on one of the trailers, if not two, uh, at one point. Kyrgyzstan was really rough on the trailers. Okay. But China, the roads were like so nice and smooth. The Chinese highways are incredible. Really? Yeah, top notch for sure. Okay, so you're walking on highways? Yep. The trailers basically forced us to roads. Okay. And occasionally we'd be off them. Um, but for the vast majority of the trip, like the main trade arteries mm-hmm. still exist. And now those are interstates. Yeah, uh, where goods are driven in trucks back right. and forth along the Silk Road, just like they've always traveled. Okay. Um, and so there was always moments where we'd like take detours of like, we really don't want to be on this massive road. Like, let's go into those little mountain village right there and yeah. we'll walk through. And then we'd be like exhausted walking through the mountains and like, you know, realize that we're not actually on the Silk Road. It's like the Silk Road's right down there where the highway is <laughs> <laughs> and find our way back there eventually. So. Okay. Okay, so you start in Xi'an. How many people live in Xi'an? Oh, I've, I have no idea. And the scale of China's, I'm really bad with population. As, as, I have no idea. Like huge or small? It's a medium. I mean, a small Chinese village has ten thousand people in it. Okay. Uh, That's the perspective. Yeah. So. Uh, Do you think like millions of people live in Xi'an? I'm so bad with population numbers. I have no idea, but it You're is right, a it is a real real Chinese city. Yeah, we need a Jamie in the background to research things for yeah, us like this. Jamie. <laughs> uh twelve million people. Yeah. Okay. So you're starting in a city. Really in a city. We thought it would take like five days to get out of city area. Okay. Um, in reality we got to like a river parkish thing on like day one. And then we didn't have any food with us because we thought we'd be in the middle of the city. Maybe it was day two. And then we were like, oh, well, there's got to be a cafe close by. Oh, sorry. Cafe means restaurant that doesn't sell coffee that's really small and like a hole in the wall. And America is the best way of explaining English. Yeah. Terminology from now on. Yeah. Um, And the closest cafe was like 3K away. Or two and a half, which isn't that far. But when you walk there and back, that's like an hour. Mm. And then it was like, well, you might as well bring all our stuff. <laughs> and so we felt like a schmucks in the beginning when we, you know, didn't have food right away to cook when we needed it <laughs> camping. And yeah. The, yeah, there was definitely a learning curve at the beginning. And we're like, we're experienced instructors. We should know to have food with us. Mm-hmm. But we thought we'd be in the city. So were you on the interstate then? Uh, that time uh, we were just like, winding through and we followed the river for a little ways okay so we didn't walk on the interstate unless it was the only road okay which was very common 
Do you speak Chinese? No, the other two speak Chinese to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. I would put Pat's level at like a strong intermediate and Paul's at like a weak intermediate. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What is... So when you're first starting out, you're along the river. What kind of geography are we looking at there? Uh, Corn, not corn. Well, yeah, corn. Fields. Just fields, agriculture. farms, agriculture. It's a giant valley. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a center of human residence. Uh-huh. So it's yeah, large agricultural area okay. with a giant city in the middle. Wow. Okay. How, how many days were you traveling until you got into a more rural area? Ish. How long? Yeah. I mean, like, uh, we might have been in what you'd consider the rural area after like three or four days. Okay. We went to Famansa. Um, right away which is this giant modern monolithic buddhist temple that we had no idea was there but we were walking and everyone's like oh you're going to famansa and we're like now we are Uh, and so that was pretty rural Uh um there's people everywhere in that area of china though so like yeah yeah how far west is that like it's a so or the way the way i would how close to the ocean (laughs) the way how not close to the ocean. The way I would explain geography in China is that like there's the heart of the Chinese territory yeah. where most of the Chinese live, which is all in the east. Mm. So we were on the west side of eastern China, which looks like it's right in the middle on the map or if anything to the east of the middle. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And how many miles do you have to go to get out of China? Uh, many. Ish. Many, many, many miles. Kilometers. It was like seven months. No. Wow. It had to have been more than seven months. It was uh, maybe eight months, maybe nine months. Yeah. Nine months? Nine months sounds right. Okay. Ten? No, ten? Maybe ten months? Mm-hmm. Hard to remember exactly at this point, but it was midsummer so for you, sure when we left. You spent a lot of time on the road in China. Yeah, I think it was 10 months. I think it was 10 months on the mm-hmm. road in China. My two friends have lived in China for years now, like five or six years. Okay. So uh, one of the reasons we started in China was that it was familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been there before. They both lived there. They both speak Chinese. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, that was a – it made sense for us to start there. Okay. And you're pushing these hand carts full of gear for months on end. Well, okay. How many miles? I'm going by miles. I know you're more in kilometers, but like, how far were you going every day? Yeah, my answers are going to be in kilometers. Sorry. (laughs) Um, Our shortest day was four kilometers, and uh, our longest group day was probably around fifty-six or fifty-seven or fifty-eight kilometers, something like that. Okay. Um, So four kilometers is like a two miles for our shortest day. Yeah. Uh, and our longest day was uh, like maybe a marathon and a little half, marathon and a half, little change on that. Okay. No. So a marathon is 42K in kilometers. So it would have been like a marathon and a third. Okay. It's maybe like 34 miles. So you're putting, you're trying to get somewhere every day. Yeah. Our plan was to average 10 kilometers or 10 miles a day, okay. which is uh, 16 kilometers a day. Uh-huh. And uh, our hope was that we'd walk faster than that and then rest and be able to do it. So at more towards the beginning, we were averaging 20K a day. 
um, by the time we finished, we were managing to average around 30 to 35 K a day, even with rest days. Okay. What did a day look like out there? Um, your routine? It varies depending on if there's city or areas around, but if we're out there in the middle of nowhere, it's like, wake up. Uh, we all camp with our own little setup. So mm-hmm. we all sleeping individually, wake up, uh, eat what you're going to eat. If you're going to eat, you walk, um, we stop for lunch. You walk some more. You stop for dinner and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe with a break or two in the midst there. Uh, when we're in cities, uh, often it's exploring the area, making connections. A lot of times people are offering us hospitality. So uh, hanging out with locals mm-hmm. and uh, writing, lots of writing, lots of hotel rooms, trying to do work uh, for the trip and trying to like tell the story. Okay. So you're trying to put the end goal is also to verbalize or like make something out of the trip that you can share with other people. Right. We're all educators. And so we all wanted to like share about these places okay. that we we're going through, but there wasn't any, like the whole trip was for us. Yeah. And, uh, that was the ends we were looking for was to have a big adventure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we just tried to do more with it since we were already there. Mm-hmm. So journaling a lot. Yeah, we tried to write a journal entry every day, and that was a rotation. And uh, I think uh, we ended up with like uh, at least a third to a, a half, somewhere in that average of okay. days we have journaled, which is still pretty good, I would say. Yeah, that's pretty good. Especially for us. And uh, then we also wrote summaries about each region we had walked through. And uh, the debate of what characterized a region was always a struggle as well, of like whether mm. to go by country lines or environmental lines or language lines or what okay this is good so i'm this might bring up points of contention with the other two members who walked but what was the first region and what characterized that for you uh so shanxi was our first region and it was a province and it also was the farming area and so it was only 14 days so i think it was uh, I think we wrote Tajikistan as its own region. I can't quite remember, but if okay. we didn't, that uh, that was our shortest one, was that 14-day section. Okay. Um, and uh, there, everything, well, the the landscape change and the province changed at the same time. So it made a lot mm. of sense. Okay. There. And so like we came out of this rural farm areas and up into the mountains of southern Gansu, which we debated for the first like week of being in, whether they were hills or mountains, until we like finally walked up a pass and then we all agreed that they were felt like mountains. Did they look like hills? Uh depends on which side of the argument you were on. <laughs> which side are you on? Uh I think I said they were hills until we hiked up one and then I was like, Yeah, no, I'll give this mountain. Um How tall are we talking? No idea. I'm not really good with any of the stats on like the okay those things that are super helpful, but it was exhausting to get up it with a trailer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And how much weight are you carrying in your trailer? Let's say average. I think the base weight was like 40 pounds. Okay. That's not um, bad. No. And uh, it only really got heavy when we were crossing large mountain sections where there wasn't a lot of food options. Mm-hmm. So like Kyrgyzstan or large desert sections where we needed to carry a lot of water. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened in the Gobi and the Kizilkum and the Usert Plateau. Okay, so you got into this mountainous region. Um, how long did that go on for? Uh, Southern Gansu 
we were probably in the mountains there for like maybe five or 10 days. And that was where Connor met up with us and started walking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, they were really cool mountains, really cool area. I pretty yeah. much liked most of the areas of the trip. I just really like the earth. And so like yeah. all of them had their own unique thing I was into. Um, and then that dropped straight down into what's called the Hexi corridor, um, where it's the Gobi desert on the northern side and on the southern side there's a mountain range can't remember the name of the mountain range right now but you walk through this valley where you just have like the gobi on one side and the mountain range on the other Mm -hmm. and gobi also uh turns out to just be a type of landscape in china it's Uh, a basically the name for a desert that's not sand dunes so where we work in utah is gobi okay gobi gobi yeah i think that sounds right gobi okay i'm not very good at the accent and it's been a while non-sand dune desert yeah that's a lot of different types of desert yeah we got corrected a lot for saying we were heading to the gobi and they're like you're in it (laughs) (laughs) okay so um did you feel physically vulnerable during this part of the trip uh that january uh the first week of the year was really cold yeah and that was tough and like uh just like trying to hope to find little hotels or whatever that we could stay in was uh always on our mind and like i remember the ice box is what we call it uh what's the ice box where we rolled up to this village and there was a sign for a hotel and we went and stayed there and the woman took out the broom and swept the dust off the beds with the broom and it was not heated at all and like uh local dusty workers had to walk through our room to get to their tiny room it was basically just like large closets for us and it was no warmer than outside at all it was like zero heating it just wasn't in the wind (laughs) so that was that was an adventure staying there but like yeah that that one week was really cold Mm. um and then wind wind stress uh can come up to get you when you're just like crossing an area and it's just like you know windy in the gobi for winter to spring yeah yeah we were in a sandstorm once uh and it was really hot uh and like so you want to cover up for the sand but it's also so hot that like covering up is boiling yeah especially while walking i'm also really warm bodied in general so i'm pretty much hot most of the time okay so yeah i when i talked with katie visco about her trip across australia she was talking about how rough the wind was just like going for like 24 hours yeah for days and days and days yeah wind stress it's real yeah so i imagine you're also getting kind of mentally stressed at this time as well um so so we walked over the mountains in gansu mm-hmm. and we started through the hexi corridor and then uh had an injury so we got waylaid in Donghong and spent chinese new year in Donghong. And then uh, went and like we, you know, we were just trying to like decide what to do, make the best decisions around all these things. Yeah. And we, so we were giving plenty of time for healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we went back and worked at where Paul and Pat both work at Inside Adventures for two weeks. Oh, wow. And uh, the thing with the trip in general is that uh, the modern era to do a trip like this, you have to do border runs. And so constantly, every 60 days in China, we had to do a border run, and it varied depending on country how often it had to happen. So every 60 days, we needed to stash our stuff, go to the edge of the country, uh, leave the country, come right back in, and then resume our trip from there. And so uh, 
in the beginning of the trip, we definitely ended up in Yangshou a lot, uh, which was their home. And it's a convenient spot to do our border runs and might as well go home for your border runs. Um, and just like we struggled getting momentum going right away in that beginning. And uh, so that was tough. And then we finally got going after New Year's and we moved from Donghuang and we were walking up to Hami. And we that was like our first like sections of real desert crossing. So that was also the struggle was like, we uh, we can stop and heal up now. And as soon as we start walking, we're like actually remote mm-hmm. and there's not going to be places to just stop. Okay. So you had to heal. Yeah. And what was the injury? Uh, it was knee stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like IT band. Is it just from walking that yep. it got yeah. activated? Uh, from poor decisions on our part that led us to doing a marathon uh, in the winter Mm. our first marathon in the winter that led to the injury occurring so it's like a series of dominoes of like who mm-hmm. uh, could have made those calls differently okay how long were you waiting for the injury to heal uh, probably close to a month wow yeah like maybe two weeks in dung Huang and then two weeks at insight and then we started walking again mm-hmm. and then we crossed into hami which was our first spot in xinjiang and uh felt the police presence of Xinjiang for the first time and uh, panicked that we wouldn't be able to do border runs from small villages that we'd have to get to the next major city uh, to do a border run. And so we decided since we were behind schedule that we were going to have to change our route because it was getting so hot and go north instead of west Mm -hmm. um, to get out of the desert. Um, Because at this point, it was like maybe around... Oh, no, it was definitely April, um, mm-hmm. but it was already getting hot there, and we would have had months of walking. What's hot mean? Uh, I got heat exhaustion when we started back up again. Um, Is it humid or dry? No, it's dry, but yeah. like we're you can't walk in the middle of the day. You have to like rest under solar panels out in the desert for the cell phone towers. Wow. Those were a sanctuary a lot of times for us. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I not good with the the numbers but uh mm-hmm. it was hot it was hot yeah it was hot and dry uh we started one morning so we so in hami we then uh decided that we we made friends too in hami and so we got sucked into being there and then we decided that we should just do a border run from there and reset before we start walking in xinjiang and uh, before we decided to pair that border run with a vacation because we were behind schedule and <laughs> Sometimes that's just what you do. Um, and so we went and saw the Silk Road cities that we had planned to walk through mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we're no longer going to get to. And we just did like the tourist route through that. And that was uh, where I met my wife actually was on that uh, trip there oh, wow. while we were in Trapan. Your trip to Trapan? To, uh, yeah, we went to Trapan and Kashgar. Okay, which are cities in which country? All in China, but they're all in far west China. So they're like right along the border. So border run is something that you have to do for your tourist visa so that you don't time out of time you're allowed to be in the country? Yep. It just resets your clock, which for us was 60 days. Okay. What what does it mean to have felt the police presence? Um, Getting detained regularly, having the police come to your hotel room regularly to tell you not to do things. and uh, yeah, like we got detained for the longest was eight hours and the most we got detained in a single day was eight times. Wow. We once got detained 
twice in the same spot where like we uh yeah you like got released and then got released and another cop pulled up and stopped us before we had even started finished our water break and does this happen because you're like three white people pushing strollers on the highway or like what is the reasoning behind Xinjiang, Xinjiang in general is probably has the most police presence in the world right now. I okay. think, uh, in general, it's where there's, uh, I'd highly recommend everyone just looks into it and makes decisions for themselves. It's a very nuanced subject. What's going on there. Like there's a, a lot of feelings on both sides mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, I don't want to like dig, go too far into it or anything, but okay. there's a, yeah, something that people should definitely look into. Okay. Okay, interesting. So there's there's a police presence there. There's a lot of police for a reason that do you feel like stating that reason or um so the uh historically that area has flipped hands a lot throughout the time. It's a Turkic ethnic group ethnic groups that live in that area. So in the north part it's a majority Kazakh and in the southern part, it's majority wayward, uh, which that's pronounced differently. I felt like in every village, I always said it wrong. That's okay. what I know. Okay, so yeah, I've always heard it. Heard Uyghur, Uyghur, yeah. wayward. It changes. I'm always saying it wrong. That's I all see. I know. <laughs> so this is Xinjiang. I always, I, I'm like visual person, and so when you say Xinjiang, I'm thinking like S H I N, but X. then yeah, yeah, when I think about it, I get the x and then that brings me to maps i've looked at and so now i kind of understand the reference you're making um yeah and so that area's flipped hands a lot and there were secession movements and terrorist attacks done by waivers and there was also mob attacks done against them and uh it very much mirrors the american west in many Mm -hmm. ways and our you know our treatment of native americans mm-hmm. in this country okay um and yeah so i guess the question that brought that up was like mental stress and so you're there. so that was stressful that was yeah. super stressful xinjiang was a uh exhausting yeah uh dealing with it constantly uh there was one funny moment where like the one of our biggest struggles was that so like all the police knew that they needed to do something, but no one knew what they needed to do. So they always did something. So it was always random what was done with us. Like sometimes we were driven forward uh, with no say in the matter. Sometimes we were told we were fine to camp there. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we were driven to a hotel to stay at. One time we were driven from one bridge a mile down the road to the next bridge because there were wolves and mosquitoes in the area. Hmm. So they had to move us for safety to a bridge a mile down the road. Are you using air quotes or... Oh, it's just a, it's just a reason. Yeah, that was, that was the reason. Um, it felt like they really just wanted, didn't want us in our, in their jurisdiction Mm -hmm. in general. And so like just wanted to us not to be there. So we didn't cause problems. I see. So that was exhausting. There was one time where like Paul and Pat, despite being the Chinese speakers, sent me to go deal with the cops Mm. and they like even made comments in Chinese the whole time while I just like struggled through the interaction and like we had this folder explaining what we were doing and I showed him that and the guy was like, Oh, this is you guys like, yeah, go ahead. Sorry for stopping you. Oh, wow. (laughs) He knew that you were coming through. I don't know. I have no idea. It, uh, it just went that way that time, but in China in general, 
and often people knew of us coming. Uh, we would huh. hit villages in China and we'd be like, hey, can we, you know, there's nowhere to go dig a cat hole because it's all farmland. Okay. And so we might ask like, hey, can we use your bathroom? And they'd be like, oh, yeah. Are you the Americans? We're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are. Did you run into anyone else on the road? Like as far as tourists? We ran. Well, yeah. Uh, it's all seasonal. Yeah. So there's the bike season. Uh-huh. Um which it's super exciting in the spring when you first meet the bikers because mm-hmm. you hadn't spoken English to people maybe in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then by the fall, you're really tired of all the bikers because they pass constantly all summer long. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's traveling. So often you it takes a while to get past that initial conversation that you have with everyone you meet. Right. That gets uh, really exhausting yeah. after a while. And uh, so we did see another Chinese dude walking the Silk Road faster than us uh okay. while we were in kashgar so that was really cool um but lots of bikers whenever we hit a tourist city there was either an expat community or uh other tourists there traveling through okay so the xinjiang province you got through this is this a desert province mostly uh so the south is the taklamakan desert uh and that's like a really massive desert taklamakan means those who go in don't come out Okay. Um, and it's ringed by the Tian Shans to the north, uh, that flow into the Pamir, that flow into the Hindu Kush, that flow into the Himalaya. Mm-hmm. So it, it's the desert in the middle of that ring of mountains. Okay. Um, and the northern part of Xinjiang then has the Tian Shans cutting through it, uh, which as the Heavenly Mountains, and then uh, north of the Heavenly Mountains is basically steppe land, uh, where there's a large Kazakh population. Okay. And where did you go? So we went from Hami, and then we uh, originally planned to go straight west, but because it was so hot, went straight north, crossed over the Tian Shan, uh, and were passed west along the northern uh, route of the Tian Shan. In okay, general, so you're in the, the step. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Edge of the mountains, step. Okay. Um, how long does? So you said months to get out of China. So you're, you you had. Your partner probably spent, who, oh God. who broke, or no, no, your partner who was injured. Yeah, you waited around. You waited for a month. You went and worked. You did some vacationing. Met your wife. Yep, and I followed her back to Shaman and lived with her for two weeks too. So like we were, we were really off track for a moment there. Uh huh. We probably had like a month off after the injury month off. Okay. Uh, yep. Wow. I taught English while there to pay for my flights over. And, okay, is the trip through Shangjiang after you the injury is recovered or before? Is the So we left Donghuang. Uh, we got to Donghuang and chilled out for the injury and then uh, went to Insight. And then we started walking from there and got to Hami. And that's when we uh, freaked out about all the police presence okay. and how we were going to do it and decided to do another border run mm. and ended up snowballing into... Uh, a lot longer off than we had planned to, and then started walking from there, went north of the Tian Shans, and started heading west uh, out of China. Okay, and this is when you're getting into a more remote area with a lot less support. Yep, and uh, yeah, a lot of police presence, uh, not much, uh, far less Chinese influence in general, so there was uh, less people and mm-hmm. less development, and yeah. Okay beautiful area and did you get in a rhythm in that area once you got to that portion of the trip yeah i mean uh 
the police really disrupt your rhythm. Yeah. So we like uh, got to Urumqi, and then after we left Urumqi, we pretty much got driven every day for a while, uh, and we like made leaps and forwards, uh, leaps forwards on our route because like the police would just constantly pick us up and move us. And that's got to be really frustrating because you're trying to walk the whole thing. Yeah, and we basically made the policy that we were gonna so. We, in general, tried to start from wherever we stopped, and we the first time we got driven by the police was on the way into Hami, and we tried, or the first time was actually in Gansu when we had the injury mm-hmm. happen. Like, we had gone back to walk because the police had driven us, and that was why we did a marathon in a day. And then in Hami, we got driven into the city, and we tried to get back to where we got driven from, mm-hmm. and we got turned down like... A half a mile from where we got picked up oh no and then we got picked up again in like another half mile and oh, like God. that was when it was like okay we're like we're not going to be able to walk all this like the police won't let us uh we just need to accept that if the police drive us like we like that's just the reality of it so you were trying to make up for that time and so you were like getting stopped by the police taking that time to go to the other place then trying to walk back and then back <laughs> And still getting interrupted by the police. So you're, you just spent like, that was a quagmire. Yeah. For you. Yep. Basically wheels spinning and not getting anywhere. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. So we got walking again and like out of Urumuchi, we were picked up constantly and driven constantly. Like that whole section's a blur because we were driven so much. And, yeah. uh, then we finally got to the border and then we were waiting on, uh, it was the last opportunity, like the Chinese internal post system is really solid. Mm. And so, uh, Paul and Pat were trying to exchange some gear items in general with, because they live in China yeah, and like switch from winter to summer sleeping bags and such while we had the opportunity. And so we ended up uh, stuck at the border waiting for mail for a little while. Um, and then we finally left China and we're moving towards Almaty, which is the capital of Kazakhstan. So we, left China, got into Kazakhstan, and we were planning to go to the World Nomad Games, and my family was actually planning to fly in and visit them. Um, but we realized we were not going to be able to walk there in time, so we left our stuff, picked up my parents, and went to the World Nomad Games, took another vacation, <laughs> and uh, went back to our stuff. And then, like, we're... At this point, like, I was super nervous that we were not going to make it through the mountains before the winter, and I just, like, kind of became an asshole just driving us forward and just, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, just, like, really trying to drive the train because I was really nervous that we were going to not make it through the mountains in the winter. Yeah. And then when they all left, another friend, Christina, came and walked with us. We Who left? uh, My parents. Sorry. My parents left, and we went after the Nomad Games. with you? No, sorry. This is, yeah, the story gets super convoluted whenever we leave the trail. It's okay. Uh, so we left our stuff in Almaty in a tiny village, uh, Shunja. Okay. And uh, it's right by Sharon Canyon. Um, and went to Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan. Picked up my parents from the airport. Drove to the north shore of Lake Issacol for the World Nomad Games, mm-hmm. which is a giant like ethnic sport Olympics. So it's uh, cultures from all around the world come together and compete in the World Nomad Games from eagle hunting to headless goat polo to uh, just like intellectual games like uh, Mandala, Mancala, whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't I can't remember Mancala. the name. Mancala. Yeah, yeah, that's the one with the 
Yep. The beads or the beans. Yeah. So that's in there too. And so like went to that, uh, took my parents to Almaty, which is, uh, the old capital of Kazakhstan. Uh, and they returned from there and then we returned to our stuff, got walking, got to Almaty. Uh, we really love Almaty. All three of us love Almaty. And like at this point we were nervous about like not, uh, being able to walk and we made a really good friend Jarnar and, uh, Susanna and like just like there was a magic the gathering shop in Almaty the mm-hmm. only one along the Silk Road and like we're playing there and having <laughs> community there and uh so Almaty was a wonderful place and then Christina came to join us and walk with us mm-hmm. uh, who you know as Tina apparently I believe <laughs> uh, yeah we have a mutual friend that we haven't confirmed but believe is the same person yeah we'll figure it out yeah uh so she came and walked with us and our plan was to cut through the mountains to avoid the main highway to get to bishkek the capital of kyrgyzstan Mm -hmm. and we passed a sign that said border control zone and uh nothing more and that didn't mean anything to us so we kept on walking we slept in this village we got invited in the next morning to have breakfast with this local dude who had lived in america for a little while so he's like fluent english mm-hmm. um and the military rolled up on us uh, and asked what we were doing there and then like came to where we were having breakfast with him and then brought us to the base and then uh, at some point along the way informed us that we had uh, like eagle legally entered the border control zone and that we were in a lot of trouble and he was really concerned that they were just trying to shake us down for a bribe Mm. And we got there, and so we went to the military base for the day, and luckily he came as our translator, because I speak. I learned Russian for the trip. Uh, I'd say, like, in those first early days of Kazakhstan, my Russian was, like, maybe strong elementary. Mm -hmm. Um, And now I'd say it's, like, a weak intermediate. Um, And so, like, it was really nice to have him there to be able to speak Kazakh with uh, them and translate for us as well. Um, cause like the languages on this trip are a large challenge in general. So like, uh, China has Chinese until you get to Xinjiang where half of it's Chinese and then half of it's Weiwer, which is a Turkic language, super close to Uzbek. Um, and the Kazakhs there, uh, speak Kazakh, but they have Kazakh and Weiwer is written in an Arab script. Uh, so, and Kazakh outside of Kazakhstan is written in a Cyrillic script. So the translator won't even translate into a script that the people can read. So you can't even (laughs) use a phone translator effectively. Um, So like the language uh, was definitely a challenge there. And uh, I like, I had learned some way uh, Uzbek while scouting and just like uh, I could do, I was beginner, I'd say beginner level Turkic. Um, where I can do like all the pleasantries and just get through basic exchanges. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're there and we're being detained at the military base and they're really nice. They're really hospitable. They gave us a dorm room uh, that the soldiers had in the barracks. They let us shower. They fed us lunch. Uh, they told us that lawyers were coming to interrogate us. Uh, lawyers eventually came after hours to interrogate us and we got questioned individually um, and like a translator came and the translator is always the worst. Every time we had a translator come to help us, it derailed the situation more. Like the conversations we had explaining what we were doing were so regular. That's like our most dialed in the local languages. Yeah. Um, and the translator knows just enough English to 
miscommunicate entirely what we're saying because uh, they don't believe our answers and just like jump to assumptions and conclusions based off what we're saying rather than God. like just listening to the clear like Chinese or Russian or uh, local that we, uh, you know, can communicate. We are walking the Silk Road. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so we got interrogated there and the questions they ask uh, just feel so humorous from our perspective. And like first we were told that like, uh, every country has a border zone and we should know this and that like, you know, clearly everywhere has this. And we're trying to explain like uh, I was very adamant that no, that's not true. Not everywhere has this. First of all, I live in what would be the border zone in Minnesota um, and we've already walked through China and like, yeah, there's places you can't go, but you don't get penalized for just, uh, you know, being in near a- the border because we walked along the border lots of times, especially right. in like the Hexi corridor. Like, yeah. And uh, this sign that says border control zone would be like, I gave him the feedback. Like, it'd be really nice to say like permit required. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, because border control doesn't mean anything to us. Yeah. Um, And uh, we're like, yeah, it is the border control zone. Of course, the border's here. Uh, But we walked along borders constantly through our trip by necessity in general. And uh, so other questions they asked were like, how did we learn about the Silk Road? like what route we were taking and what we would do if we lost our maps to continue on the route. And mm-hmm. it's like, I just explained every city we're walking to, like how, like we, how hard is it to get from one capital to the next on the main highway? Like, we, right. And, you know, we all have smart devices. So like, clearly this route is obvious. And, uh, and like, where did we hear about the silk road? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And interrogated on, uh, why we didn't have wives and why we didn't have kids and oh. just like yeah it's the line of questioning just feels so foreign and so ridiculous yeah. from our side and then finally they drove us to a town that we'd passed through where there was a bank and we were, all had to pay our fine and we were given our official citations and we all had to pay $17.50 a person oh. after eight hours of being detained and being interrogated with lawyers from Almaty who had driven out just to interrogate us and all of this wow. for $17. And they were like really concerned, like, are you okay paying with paying this? Like, are you going to do this? And we're like, yeah. <laughs> do we have a choice? They're like, no. I'm like, then yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> What else? Yeah. And so that was an adventure for the day. And yeah. then from there, we walked the main highway to cross the border into Bishkek. Uh, got to Bishkek. Where's Bishkek? Uh, it's the capital of Kyrgyzstan. It's right over the border from Kazakhstan. It's like maybe 15 miles from the border. Okay. Um, and before we got there, actually, we had to, Christina had to leave um, before we were going to make it to Bishkek. Our plan was to walk through the mountains, make it to Bishkek right in time, and she'd fly out like perfectly planned. Mm -hmm. Um, And because of the uh, rerouting by the police or by the military, we weren't going to be able to do that. And so we abandoned our stuff in a tiny cafe in the middle of nowhere and uh, drove to Bishkek and saw her off from there. And then got a ride back to our stuff and then continued walking. Finally made it to Bishkek and snow was falling. And we'd gone over a really tiny hill mountain pass before crossing the border. And it had been snowy. And it was just like, oh, no, we are too late. (laughs) And uh, Kyrgyzstan is like 92 or 96% mountains. And so like walking through Kyrgyzstan through the winter was just never going to be an option. Yeah. Um, 
And so we hung out. Our plan was already to stay in Bishkek for a little while because Paul was working on a movie project and there was a film festival going on in Omlati that we had a connection to someone who was a part of. And so we were trying to get a small video into that. And so we ended up spending like 15 days or whatever in Bishkek just hanging out and decided that we needed to take a break from the trip uh, and come back to it later. So that was really tough decision in general. Um, and Bishkek, while we were there, we made a bunch of friends and, uh, Bishkek is one of my favorite places in the world at this point. Like the community there is wonderful. It's, a uh, there's tons of Indian expats in Kyrgyzstan because they go there for medical school. Huh. Um, and so there is one bar in particular, um, and also Kyrgyzstan has tons of French and German people there as well. Yeah. And there was one bar in particular that had this expat community, um, that was basically built around it. And uh, yeah, it was really, we all craved community so hard at that point that when we got there, it was really hard to leave Bishkek and we loved the time there in general. Yeah. Yeah. What was the, like the team dynamic between the three of you looking, looking like before you got to Bishkek? I mean, it just sounds like super chaotic, this whole journey, like back and forth, back and forth, getting interrogated back and forth, like trying to meet up with different people that are coming to visit you. I mean, did that take a toll on the friendships that you had? Yeah, there were definitely lots of highs and lots of lows and like plenty of times where we like really struggled with each other. Um, and uh, yeah, I know I felt it a lot where I like just was like, yeah, frustrated about the same things over and over. And like that was the one of the main points of the trip, though, was to like put ourselves in this really tough interpersonal struggle that yeah. we had to learn and grow through and get through. Um, but it definitely had lots of ups and lots of downs um, throughout that time in general. Yeah. And so you arrive to Bishkek and have a wonderful time and decide you can't go Yep. any further and pause the trip. Do you go back to the U.S.? I went back to Elements because so we also realized at that time that we did not have enough money to finish the trip. OK. Uh, especially with flights back and forth. But right. in general, we were we spent more than we. I had planned to, and we walked less than we had planned to, so we needed more money overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went back to Elements, and Paul and Pat both went back to Insight, and we just like resumed our jobs that we had had. Insights mm-hmm. in China, it's like the leader of outdoor education in China, and uh, resumed the jobs we had, and just saved as much money as we could for the winter. So you worked just for the winter, then yep. before resuming. How long had you been on the road at this point? A year. A year. Almost exactly a year. We okay. left Bishkek almost exactly a year after we started. How was it rallying when you when you were done working and like going back? How was that? Like was there was there still momentum to like get the project done or was there hesitancy between you and other members or So earlier uh in the time frame while we were walking there had been talk of like uh if we stop like it's done. Uh, for different various reasons for certain people and by the time we got to bishkek everyone was sure they wanted to keep continuing which was awesome and everyone was fully committed to the trip okay uh we almost considered to stay in almaty or bishkek for the winter to just like you know stay more true to the Mm -hmm. trip and just live there and just have gotten stuck in place yeah and uh just try and break even and we felt that for us, the right decision if we needed money was to go and try and make the money 
that if like we wanted to do this trip, we should go try and make the money ourselves to do it. Uh, if we knew we were going to need it. And so that was why it ended up being the final decider on leaving. Yeah. We also like really love our lives outside of the trip. And so like returning to them for a winter, uh, didn't sound bad at all. Yeah. Yeah. But I suppose after being out there for a year that had become your life in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. And so you, you got back. Yep. We got back and, uh, uh, Bishkek sucked us in just like always. And our like maybe our second week we were going to be in Bishkek, mm-hmm. there was a the first ever music festival on Lake Issachol. Uh, and the bar that our community was surrounded by was going to move to the lake wow. for the weekend. And also the one of the guys whose bar it is is in a band um, and they were going to play there. And <laughs> uh, we were fans of their band in general. And so like it, we had to go. <laughs> Do you know the name of the band? Does he have music out? It's uh, Frunza Street Live. Okay. Uh, and they do have music out, and they have some awesome YouTube videos. Kyrgyzstan is a country of opportunity, unlike any other, and freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with uh, knowing the right people in the right places, they made one of their music videos on the tarmac of the international airport. Whoa. Yeah, uh, despite being a small band. <laughs> oh, that's sick. Yep. And so uh, Frunza Street Live's. Live, I would definitely check them up. Frunza is the old name of Bishkek. Okay. So, a okay. historical name. <clears throat> so, you went to a music festival on a lake. Yep. How was uh, that? It was wonderful. It was a blast. Um, and then we left from there, went back to Bishkek. And then between, like, birthday parties and random stuff, we, like, were still sucked into Bishkek for, like, another week or so. Wow. So, it was a while before we finally left Bishkek and started walking. And then when we started walking it was just like the heat was so harsh during the day that like 10 K would be a good day yeah. um, until we reached the mountains. And then we got into the mountains and the mountains were so tough that 10 K was a good day. Uh, and we, we were cutting through the mountains on an old road. Yeah. Um, the road is definitely not there anymore straight through. Um, but it was like, just like uh, five or six days of rolling up, a mountain with our trailers and just like hauling them up. And then, uh, it was maybe like 10 or 12 days before we even got to the next tiny village that had a shop. Uh, wow. there were like yurts in between every once in a while. Um, mm-hmm. cause, uh, Kyrgyzstan is filled with horse nomads. Okay. Uh, and they're all in the mountains in the summer, uh, with their yurts and their sheep and their horses. Um, and so we passed through past some of them, but overall, we yeah we're on our own with bikers passing us regularly <laughs> there is a friend of ours there who started the uh silk no yeah the silk road mountain bike race i want to say the name is and it's a mountain bike race in kyrgyzstan um and it's supposed to be the toughest mountain bike race in the world wow uh or one of at least and uh that w- people were training for that so we saw them passing us constantly while we were going over kegadi pass which is the first pass of the race okay and then, like, down the pass, uh, it was just a massive scree field uh, hmm. of, like, like, two or three miles. of The road was a scree field? There used to be a road through the scree field. Okay. Uh, and now it's just, like, a series of levels with piles of rocks. Yeah, so scree pushing... to talus. Yeah. <laughs> sliding. You're sliding with your trailer down okay. sections. Yeah. Trying to do some, like, technical slide That's with your trailer. Rough. And also, yeah. Kyrgyzstan was really rough on our trailers and we knew from the get-go that it was going to be make or break it for our trailers. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, everyone but Paul's broke oh, wow. while in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, but we usually just like tied them and taped them and splinted them back together and we could hobble them to a town. And then we ended up getting more parts to fix them up in uh, the Osh, which is the lower city in Kyrgyzstan. Okay. What are the what are the people like in Kyrgyzstan? Uh, I really like Kyrgyz part, people in general. They're like a, uh, described as like the the younger brother that never grew up and just likes to party and have a good time. Yeah. Uh, yep. So the Kyrgyz, uh, they definitely drink a lot of uh, Arak, which is just their word for vodka, okay. basically. And uh, super hospitable overall. So like uh, while we were at the World Nomad Games with my family, my mom like asked some dude on the street like how we should get to this town uh, or this mountain village for part of the games the next day. And he's like, don't even worry about it. We'll pick you up. And like, sure enough, the van pulls up and we're the only foreigners in it. And it turns out they're all just villagers from the same village yeah. who are all going together. And then it just like tossed us in the van with them and like drinking vodka on the way up in the van <laughs> just to start the morning. And uh, yeah, they drink vodka all the time um, and are always offering us. And like the people were super hospitable in general. The only time like you ever had any issues were just like drunk people bothering you but no one sober ever bothered us in kyrgyzstan only just like the best hospitality wow yeah so you're spending a lot of do you spend nights with people that are like taking you in or uh less so at this point we hadn't really spent nights in people's homes Mm -hmm. um all that often uh so like especially in the mountains you know like there's yurts so it's not much different than our tents Okay. And uh so you're like camping, getting drunk with a lot of Kyrgyz? Yep. Yeah. Uh and it's uh like rude or deceitful seeming if you don't drink the vodka. So generally like if it's offered you uh try to take it. Um so there were occasional days when we turned it down, but like it was also scary being on the road cuz like especially in Kazakhstan, people would like pull over, see you there and be like, "Oh, this is so exciting. Drink vodka with us." And like yeah. Wow, everyone on this road's drunk, aren't they? Because <laughs> oh, wow. you're getting us drunk on the side of the road while you're driving it. <laughs> yeah. So that was nerve-wracking at times, just like having that knowledge that like, yeah, there's definitely a lot of drinking and driving going on because they're offering us alcohol with them and then getting back in their car and driving. Yeah, were there close calls with cars? Um, One or two. One or two, but uh, for the most part, it was fine. Like the nicest thing people would do is just like slow down and give us space. The worst is... Uh, they would honk right next to our ears Uh, and that like they're trying to be friendly, but it was just like really annoying. Yeah. So if you ever see people walking on the road, slow down, give them space, please don't honk right at them. Yeah. I think that counts for biking too. Yeah. But lots, lots of, so as soon as we hit, uh, so there's hospitality throughout the whole trip Mm -hmm. in China, the hospitality is taking you out to eat. So, Mm -hmm. uh, strangers we met always were taking us out to restaurants and feeding us. Wow but we weren't being invited into homes. I think we slept in someone's home once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, for the most part, like being fed everywhere we went in China, people were hosting us to eat dinner wow. and feeding us and paying for it and insisting on paying for it. Like culturally, there's like the fight over the bill mm-hmm. a lot more there than in the U S for sure. Like wow. one person pays when you go out to eat in China, mm-hmm. not you don't split it up just like someone pays. Okay. 
Um, and so we were treated a lot there. The hospitality in Xinjiang became gifts. So like one time someone gave us like, I think we received like six or seven melons in a day once. And like someone would be like, you have way too much stuff here. Take these three watermelons to add to all your things. <laughs> but, uh, is, uh, Hamigua is from there, which is the honeydew melon. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, it seems like in that area that every melon is a Hamigua because Hami has all the melons. Um, and so melons were constant gifts through Xinjiang and as well as bread. Bread was given to us regularly. And then when we got out of there in Kazakhstan, we were always just given something on the road, often bread or vodka. Um, and then Kyrgyzstan, it was same, similar bread or vodka. Um, and like that was through the mountains there. And then Uzbekistan is like, uh, one of the most hospitable places in the world. Like they take hospitality so seriously there. Um, and it was always escalating. Mm-hmm. If you told them no, they just like escalated their offers. So like oh. stop and have tea with me. And you'd be like, sorry, I don't have time. Okay. Well come, you know, take like rest in my house for a little, sorry, <laughs> I don't have time. Well, like just come spend the night then <laughs> like, sorry, we need to keep walking. And they're like, well, like you don't have to go anywhere here. Stay for like three days. And so it was just like, every time you turn them down, they just offered more. Yeah. Um, and like the hospitality there is just like, uh, it's shocking. It's like extremely shocking in general. And so like, that was where we ended up after Kyrgyzstan. We like, we crossed through the mountains. It was supposed to only take a month. I think it took almost three. Um, and I think that goes to the fact that the mountains were just like really exhausting. Mm-hmm. and so and there was long stretches in between places so we would like hike a long stretch and then get to a town and like not want to leave the town right. because like it was going to be another long stretch of almost two weeks through the mountains before we got to another tiny village that had a hotel and a place we could just buy food to eat yeah um and we kept getting sucked back into bishkek for various reasons any reason to go to bishkek so we you took fly back to bishkek no we drive drive back yeah buses or uh, marshrutkas, which are like, uh, mini buses. Yeah. yeah. Collectivos. Yeah. Okay. Um, in general, Central Asia, the public transportation for the most part is like waving down and carpooling and then mm. paying for the carpool. Gotcha. Um, so you wow. just like wave down any car on the road and they pick you up and there's people who like are out there to pick up people, but there's also anyone driving will pick up anyone they see who they have space for. It's like an Uber without the middleman. Yep. It's just so much more hospitality in that sense too of like yeah you need a ride and i have a car so yeah. like of course we're gonna do this together right yeah so That's a lot cool. of times we get picked up and not charged anything either and they're just like you know want to hang out with us mm-hmm. we definitely like came into this with so much privileges like white men mm-hmm. in our prime mm-hmm. age-wise so like you know they're like everything is seen through that frame of reference as well mm-hmm. which is uh very different than like when christina or my wife joined us on sections and like experienced being a woman in these areas was very different from yeah experience i imagine that would make a big difference yeah so we struggled through kyrgyzstan and uh that was tough for me in general because i was like i came back and i was like i don't want to drive the train because i was just a miserable person to be around Mm -hmm. while i was trying to force us forward and no one wanted a driver Mm -hmm. and uh we took a break and it was wonderful and fine and i really enjoyed the break Mm-hmm. And so, like, I was trying not to gloom and doom forecast about the future because yeah. everything had been wonderful the whole time through already. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Kyrgyzstan was slow. Finally got to the border, and uh, Uzbekistan has an online visa process. 
and uh, it doesn't really work well. <laughs> and so it took like a week and a half to finally get our visas to go through, which were only supposed to take like three to four days. Mm-hmm. And then we got to the border and uh, I had screwed up Paul's visa with the wrong birth year. Oh, no. uh, from like my phone was the only one that would work with their website. And so we were doing it all on my phone. And so Paul got denied entry into Uzbekistan. So we turned around, went back, spent like another week and a half trying to get him his visa. Wow. Finally got into Uzbekistan. And so like everything had been going slow at this point in general. Like we, it was September. We had gotten back to Bishkek in June and we had started walking in July. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like a lot of time had already progressed. Yeah. And uh, we got into Uzbekistan and the first town we got to uh Pat got invited in by this guy, Zoha. And we went and like me and Pat ended up staying at Zoha's that night. And Paul went to a hotel to just like have some space and to get registered. Cause Uzbekistan has this old Sovietic registration process. That's super convoluted. And, uh, even now not really sure about chunks of it. Okay. Um, and so, uh, Zoha was showing us around the first day and it was uh Paul and Pat definitely found it exhausting because he like treated us like a child and like took us everywhere and like gave us no space and no freedom and no autonomy to do anything yeah and then we stayed the second day and it was similar and then the third day I was trying to sort out our um registration and he was helping me out with that and it was like a huge struggle and he didn't think we needed to be registered and I'm like we definitely need to be registered He's like, you don't need to be registered. I've had visitors before. And I'm like, we do need to be registered. And he's like, we'll go sort this out. We'll go straight to the government office. And so we spent a, a day knocking on doors, me and him, and like getting it sorted out and trying to figure out and like get the whole process rolling. And then we found out about the online registration stuff, like got more details. And it turned out the whole thing had been down. And Zoha, we only like they found out when we called, when Zoha called them and was like, Hey, I can't get this to work. <laughs> and they're like, Oh, we were wondering why no one had registered for a visa for a while now or for a registration. It was oh, like, man. yeah. <laughs> and so it was a mess. Um, and then after the third day, uh, we ended up staying another day with Zoha's and it was like so different. Like, and he explained that in Uzbekistan, the culture is to, uh, treat the guest as a child for the first three days and make sure that all their needs are met and like that every desire is like cared for and that they're constantly managed and taken care of. And then the fourth day, we were just like free to be there as friends and do whatever we wanted and hang out. And then that was like so freeing. And then we ended wow. up spending like at least two more days at Soha's. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, oddly specific. Yep. And, uh, like, Ah, Zoha is such, uh, I consider him a friend still mm-hmm. and, uh, still keep in touch with him every so often. And, uh, yeah, it showed us such a wonderful time there. And, uh, yeah, that was a, like right away. First week into Uzbekistan was spent not walking. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, uh, we're pretty sure we only have, uh, the assumption of evidence because he, he told Pat about it but none of us ever saw it and he never confessed in the end, but we're pretty sure he made a giant platter with our faces on it as a gift for us, a ceramic platter. Yeah. And that it's waiting for us at his house for whoever shows up first. Whoa. So, uh, that we're in a race between each other to get to like, and John. he made a piece of art. No, he did uh, you on there or 
uh, Uzbekistan was closed to the world pretty much from the collapse of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. till like two or three years ago. And so everything is made in Uzbekistan. Yeah. Uh, so there's tons of ceramic, like and ceramics is one of their like longest trades in general and like one of their highest art forms. And so there's a ceramic factories right there. And he just like, you can just go into any factory in Uzbekistan. And usually they're just like, yeah, you can look around. It's just a factory. and like you get free reign to just wander around and you can just order things to be made um and so like yeah pretty sure he got a ceramic uh painting we got we ordered some portraits i like got a picture of me and my wife painted uh for like 20 bucks wow yeah that's incredible yep and so yeah i love uzbekistan for like the the people are wonderful and uzbekistan also has the best food of central asia huh which doesn't necessarily mean the food is like, you know, one of the best in the world, but they use spice or spices and <laughs> they uh, care a lot about the food. So it turns out really well. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what food did they make there? Plov is the biggest dish. It's like a rice cooked in a stew. Mm-hmm. Um, it also goes by pilaf um, oh, or okay. osh, osh there. Uh, and the way someone might ask you if you want to eat it is they like take their hand and they gesture of like rubbing face on or food on their face. <laughs> <laughs> and that means like, do you want to eat Osh? And it's a uh, traditionally eating by your hand, but nowadays it's usually eating with a spoon huh. and it's just like served in a giant platter that everyone eats off of. And, uh, we got treated. That's like when people are taking you out to treat you, it's usually that. And it's like a three or four hour process. Like when my parents had come, we thought about ordering some for them and we were still like in getting used to the local cultures mm-hmm. and they told us it was gonna be like two hours and we're like whoa we don't we don't want to wait like that long for food <laughs> yeah um but the chaihanas and the ashanas there you like go and you just spend the evening there and that's like the activity you just drink tea and eat plov and it takes hours um so that was something we did with zoha as well he took us out to that shashlik which is just skewers of meat is the other big one and then samsa which are uh, dumplings that are usually baked in a ton- tandoori oven okay. out there. Those are like the big meals. You basically ate those three things all the time. Other than that, it was Sovietic food. Okay. Well, that sounds cool. Yeah. So is Uzbekistan the last country that you were in? Kazakhstan was the last country we were in. We, uh, uh, Uzbekistan is like wrapped by Kazakhstan in the north. Okay. And so we went from Kazakhstan to Kyrgyzstan to Uzbekistan back to Kazakhstan. Okay. So what is the terrain like through these countries? Uh, Kyrgyzstan's mountainous and it was just mountains the whole time. And then Uzbekistan, like the southern section of Uzbekistan. Oh, I forgot Tajikistan on the list. That was weird in general, a weird time. So we come out of the mountains of Kyrgyzstan and we enter the Fergana Valley mm-hmm. and some of the Fergana Valleys also in Kyrgyzstan, like uh, Asha's in Kyrgyzstan as well. Um, and that's like the southern city in the country. Mm-hmm. And so that whole area is like the farming and agriculture for all of Uzbekistan and a lot of Central Asia in general. Wow. And uh, a lot of cotton's grown there and it's controversial because they have uh slave labor as a holdout it's like categorized as slave slave labor um it's a holdout of the sovietic system where uh people would go and work the fields in the fall and spring everyone would go Mm -hmm. like the young people the college students and the old people whoever wasn't already working Mm -hmm. um 
And uh, so that still is something there. And uh, we were told by him, like, basically that if you refuse to go, they just, like, plant drugs on you or call you a terrorist. There's a lot of repression of Islam uh, in Uzbekistan previously. And, like, Uzbekistan's in a place of uh, large change right now in general. There was a previous dictator who died. And when he switched, the new guy has been, like, shaking things up a lot. And that's why Uzbekistan is now open to the rest of the world. He fixed their currency crisis and has just been doing a lot of change in Uzbekistan right now. And the Uzbeks are really proud of that and really proud of him and what he's been doing for Mm -hmm. the country as a whole. So they're really making progress in that governmental side, at least from our perspective and their perspective. Yeah. So that's a, it's interesting because I was there the first time. So to like see the difference was pretty cool. That is cool. So they're making progress and he's a dictator. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting. The first uh, dictator were all benevolent in Rome. So, yeah. yeah. Ish. Yeah. Ish. For the Romans. Yeah. For the Romans. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Wow. He's opening that process up there in general. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. So we're crossing through the Fergana Valley, and that's where Zohar lived. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of uh, historical, cultural centers there. So that's like their ceramics come out of Rishton, and it's this area where like they have ceramic masters still working there. And uh, basically all of the ground is perfect clay. Well, So like you can dig anywhere in Rishton, and you get perfect uh, clay to use. Um, they have their knife makers in Chust are some of the world's best and oldest. Um, and Paul and Pat went to, I went, so at this point my wife was coming to visit and walk with us. And so I went to go pick her up in the capital Tashkent while Paul and Pat went to Chust and like got stayed at Zoha's friend's place, Mm -hmm. uh, who was a knife maker and like got to see the whole process and bought some knives from him directly. And then next door they bought a hat from a hat maker right there and just like, it's really cool how local everything is as a like uh, occurrence of being so shut down before. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, lots of history there in general. Like they were, um, they're, they're the Oasis Center more or less in the middle of Asia. And so because of that, they've always been a mainstay of the Silk Road just because it's like a land of plenty in the middle of mountains and deserts. Wow. Um, yeah. And so we crossed the Fergana Valley and my wife came and walked with us and then she left and we were trying to do a smooth transition and have another friend was coming to walk with us. And so we timed it so that she would leave and we'd pick him up right after she left in Mm -hmm. the capital and keep walking. And so like we had a slow time through Kyrgyzstan. We get into Uzbekistan, have a, a immediate week of not walking we my wife comes and like she walked with us and like did a good job but it just like the handoff and picking her up and all that made it slow too is she is she your wife at this point yep we got married when uh during the winter break she had come to stay in america for three weeks and Mm -hmm. visit and stayed for four months and on the way out we got married oh wow yeah and she lived in a van in the desert with me while i worked so and like in a bunch of different elements people's houses um my work shifts. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. So big shout out to Sam and Dylan and David and Hannah. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. And so uh, we were moving slow still. Yeah. And 
we went and picked up Kit and Kit came and <laughs> immediately Kit is like, uh, I don't know how I got in. My visa has the wrong year. And I like the plan with Kit was to walk across the arm of Tajikistan that cuts into Uzbekistan. And he's like, I cannot walk through Tajikistan. My visa is not correct. I don't know how I got in the country. I can't get stuck there. And so it was me like, oh, well, we only had one day of walking before we got to the border or two. <laughs> so we couldn't walk well. Kit was there. And so we uh, just like went and explored Uzbekistan with him since there was a, you know, our friend came to visit and he couldn't walk. So yeah. we just spent that time. So like then we were still just like, you know, spinning the wheels and not getting very far. Yeah. And uh, yeah, feeling frustrated about it happening yet again. And I also had planned to go to my cousin's wedding in December in Sicily. Um, and so like there was this date coming up where we were going to be stopping in the future too. And we hadn't even been making much progress. Mm -hmm. And so then we like turned on the burners and just decided to try and walk as fast and as hard as we could yeah. until that break. And we left Uzbekistan, entered into Tajikistan in the uh, Kujand area, which is like, you can imagine those borders over there uh, as like, if you had three or three corners going into each other and then you took that and you spun it into a swirl or a spiral. <laughs> so like it's the Whoa. three countries are all spiraled into each other and there's a lot of enclaves and exclaves. I don't, I think uh, the difference between an enclave and an exclave is the perspective that you're in. <laughs> um, and, uh, so we walked into there and like a day into that section, like I was really nervous about like not camping through this one spot where it was like right on the border of Kyrgyzstan and the maps. Mm -hmm. And at one point we like cross uh, a little bridge and all of a sudden like Paul and Pat were ahead of me and they were in the town and there's Kyrgyz flags and Kyrgyz license plates. And uh, Paul and Pat are sitting there at a restaurant wearing their call packs, which are the Kyrgyz hats. Uh, Throughout Central Asia, people wear hats as like part of their identity item. Okay. Um, the one I'm wearing right now is a Kyrgyz uh, call pack as well. It's just the summer one. Okay, cool. Um, and call pack just means hat, it seems, because they use it for, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, and so roll up and uh, meet up with them. And it turns out we're in Kyrgyzstan mm -hmm. and we had crossed from Tajikistan with Kyrgyzstan with no sign, no nothing. Uh, we're just in a Kyrgyz village now. And uh, you could tell it was different because the store was filled with vodka <laughs> <laughs> and like uh, people spoke Kyrgyz again, which was really exciting. Cause like by this point we had spent almost three months in Kyrgyzstan and my best dialect of Turkic at that point was Kyrgyz. Mm -hmm. And so like rolled up and being able to just like, they whipped out their hats showing that they knew exactly what they were doing. And I was whipping out my Kyrgyz language and just like people were stoked on us <laughs> <laughs> and we were stoked to be back in a familiar place. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, cause Tajikistan is the one country in our route over there where instead of a Turkic language, they're a Persian language. Yeah. And so we pulled into Tajikistan and I like could not speak any of the local language at all okay. for the first time all trip mm -hmm. that had happened for any of us. Um, and cause even before we started, I at least knew numbers in Turkic um, dialects and like I could convert from one language to the next with numbers. It's like the difference between Y's and J's. Yirgama and Jirgama are both 20. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
so that was exciting and confusing. And then we continued to walk and it was just like constant for like a day or so of like not knowing which country we were in. Like mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the day, I was waiting for Paul and Pat and it turned out that like, I thought I was back in Tajikistan and I was talking to the guy and he's like, like, where are you from? Like, I'm from Kyrgyzstan. And I'm like, wait a minute, where are we right now? <laughs> and he's like, we're in Kyrgyzstan right now. He's like, right, there's Tajikistan. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so... So the most notable thing during our time in Tajikistan was being back on Kyrgyzstan on accident. Yeah. Uh, then we got to Kujan, which was the capital area, and walked out of there. And then Paul and Pat were in a village and were told that they were in Uzbekistan, um, even though we were like definitely well within the Tajikistan boundaries. Oh. Um, and they're like, no, this village is Uzbekistan. Wow. Uh, and they had had border disputes previously mm-hmm. uh, during the collapse in general. And so that was weird in general. And like a lot of times we would... We, for the most part, tried to camp together, but yeah. in the beginning, we always tried to stay in sight. And then after that point, like as like within a year of experience, we loosened on the need to be in sight and we just like tried to meet up regularly yeah. uh, as we got more comfortable with it. And then in Interesting. yeah, Uzbekistan, when my wife came, like me and my wife walked and then each Paul and Pat each did a solo hmm. more or less to meet up in the same spot. So yeah. like all of that stuff varied continuously throughout the trip based on what was going on at the time Um, so you go through the spiral of tajikistan kyrgyzstan and kazakhstan yep and we pop back out into uzbekistan and we are following the border and we walk it down south and we end up in bikabad and uh it's basically the pittsburgh of central asia it's just a steel town and it has more bars than anywhere per person than anywhere i've ever been Uh, which to be a bar there, you know, it's just a place that sells beer with tables and maybe like salty fish as well. Okay. Um, so not a lot of flair. Um, no competition for liquor licenses, obviously. Yeah. I don't know if there's liquor licenses. (laughs) Um, and then, uh, we ended up, me and Paul were out for the night and just like seeing the town and experiencing, which is a very common thing. Like we'd love to wander around and just like see what happens to us mm-hmm. and so we were drinking at one of these bars and a couple steel workers invited us out to the club and so we were like why not we'll go we'll go clubbing with you and we get to the club and there's like one other table of four that are sitting there talking and then no one else and so it's <laughs> us and these steel workers dancing in this club and there's some good videos of like paul dancing with them and like you know full decked out club but no no one <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> yeah so that was a lot of fun they still message me regularly uh which is fun too. Oh, in general, people are always asking your phone for your phone number over there. Yeah. Even if they don't even talk to you or interact with you at mm-hmm. all, they still like want to get your phone number. Yeah. Um, which feels odd to us, but not to them. Yeah. Um, so we left there and we are continuing following the border. And at this point we're like still trying to just book it. And, uh, the, that week was miserable weather, just like the worst of like, uh, 40 degrees and rainy oh. to snow, rain to snow constantly, That's snow than rain. Yeah. yeah. And we like, we rolled out of this town and we're like following the border cause it's where the road is and it's where the route is. And it's just like military base after military base after military base after like compound. And, <laughs> and like we... Like, uh, you got to stop and eat lunch at some point. So at some point, like, we pulled out our stools and just started eating lunch in front of one of the military bases. And, like, mm-hmm. the ununiformed guard comes out and walks by and checks us out. And uh, we walked through a town that had clearly been uh, destroyed by what I assume was the border dispute wars in general between them. And, like, 
it was the first time I'd ever been in a war zone that had not been rebuilt, uh, but people were still living in. And so mm. like, that was really weird and tough to see in general of like walking through this area where it was like, you could feel the collapse of the Soviet union. It was like this arbitrary border. And all of a sudden now, like, you know, people's homes and lives were destroyed because this border has showed up for the first time ever, probably in history is right there. Um, so that was, a. So after the fall of the Soviet Union was when the border was made, right? Am I correct? Well, the borders were created during the Soviet Union, but they were all one union. And then when it fell apart, uh, there was disputes, um, especially over like key resources like dams and areas such as that. Um, And uh, at the time, Uzbekistan just took the initiative to just landmine what they claimed as the border. Wow. and the new guy who's in charge has led the effort, and uh, I think they have finally declared the border zone my, landmine free now. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, and, like, that's one of the things that has happened since he's come into power is, like, trying to end those border disputes. And that's what's created all these enclaves and exclaves, and that's why, like, we're walking into Kyrgyzstan on accident from Tajikistan, mm. and just, like, the it's, like, very indefinitive. I see. Because, like, this one village is ethnically entirely uzbek or kyrgyz but around it is all tajiks so when you were walking through the area the border with the military bases was that and that was an active war zone at the time no uh but it had not been rebuilt from when it was okay which well i don't know it depends on there was like guards towers everywhere and like military around so like there's definitely no active war between the two but like military or border disputes pop up all the time there of like some group tries to go build a wall and then villagers try to stop them from building a wall from the other ethnic group and then tensions flare and they start throwing rocks and then border guards start shooting and then like mm. that's super common over there in general because the borders are so undefined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like that was, I mean, there was almost a revolution in Kyrgyzstan when we were in Bishkek. The Kyrgyz people, most free in the world. If they don't like the government, they just overthrow it. It just like wow. happens as a norm. Just all the time. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and it almost happened again while we were there. Um, yeah. And a friend of ours is just like, yeah, if you know, this is going on, this is normal. You just go up into the mountains for a couple of weeks and you come down when there's a new government. <laughs> but awesome. uh, it's definitely hard for the economics there with oh, yeah. that instability. Um, yeah. So, um, so we were walking along this border and then like, uh, we're just like the hospitality in Uzbekistan is constant in general. And like finally a, police officer stops and we're just like trying to get way away from the border for the night or like not even way away, but like oh, the other direction, not by the military yeah, base, not try to sleep on the border. Yeah. <laughs> and a uh, cop rolls up to us and like, he's the first one to ask for our, our passports and actually look at them all day, even though we've been walking through like what seems to be restricted areas constantly. Mm-hmm. Oh, earlier than this, I totally forgot. We had got stopped at a bridge that like it comes up and it says border, like border zone, do not stop driving. Um, and, uh, we go up to these guards and they're like, nope, you cannot go here. Or they're just like, put up their hand. I couldn't even remember what language they had used. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we like pulled away from them and we we're like, oh, we really don't want to push our luck and like have their superiors come and drive us or tell us we're in more trouble. And to go around them would mean like a day or two detour. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then we'd be back along the border after that. Yeah. And so we lingered on this bridge indecisively trying to figure out what we were going to do. 
And eventually we lingered long enough that the border guard was just like, oh, all right, you can come and just like waved us over. <laughs> and we just like walked along like the direct border right there. And that was where we walked into the village that had been torn apart after that, at the end of that section. Okay. And uh, it was multiple times throughout the trip where like the best thing to do with police telling us to say no for things was to just linger. And like if we mm. lingered long enough, sometimes they're just like, oh, "All right, it's not worth it." Yeah, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. obviously have will, and we don't want to deal with you. Yep. Yeah. So that was a really common like, just stay nice and just stay there. <laughs> yep. And uh, then this police officer pulled over and was like, uh, "Where are you sleeping for the night?" And finally, he was just like, "Just come stay with us." <laughs> and so we ended up staying at the police village house. Oh, uh, wow. with him and another cop and they like brought us plow or they brought us shashlik for dinner and then like next day they took us out to plow for lunch and just like you know showing us as much hospitality as anywhere else in uzbekistan and just like regularly during this terrible weather period we were staying inside restaurants usually mm-hmm. we like walk until we found a restaurant and the uzbek dining style is like a big uh a big table that's really short and you sit on the ground and so um, all the restaurants could also serve as beds because you sit on the same pad that you sleep on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, uh, we definitely started to take hospitality for granted. And we'd, like, show up to a restaurant knowing they would let us stay there. Yeah. And, like, the only times where, like, they would say no is, like, they would be like, it's going to be too cold for you. Like, you can't stay here. And then we're like, no, like, we're here or we're outside. And, like, all right, well, we'll make this as comfortable for you as possible then. <laughs> it's yeah. like yeah it was we definitely started to take it for granted because it was just constant hospitality yeah uh every day everywhere from everyone you met pretty much there in general and so we continued walking along that border and then finally veered off uh and like uh we're still hoofing it and at this point we we're like averaging almost 30k a day mm-hmm. uh, including our rest days and like really making good progress but like the city we had set as our goal for flying away at um, to go to, I was going to go to the wedding and they were both planning on seeing their girlfriends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that city just kept switching from a city that was closer to us. And then a city, another city that was closer to us. And then another city was closer to us as we like, we're not reaching our time goals to get to those places in time. I see. Um, and, uh, we ended up finally making it to Samarkand, which is like the, crown jewel city of the silk road i would say like it has some of the oldest and best preserved islamic architecture in the world it was basically it was first like alexander the great built the city there Mm -hmm. uh, which got destroyed um i believe by genghis Khan, uh and then timur lane or timur or timur depending on of where you're from uh he built the timurid empire out of that area in general and built up the capital of Samarkand before it switched to, I believe, Herat in the future. Okay, and this is in present-day Kazakhstan? Uh, Uzbekistan, but it's really all of Central Asia. Like, he built the empire, was Central Asia. Okay. Uh, And it was, like, the 1420 time period. Okay. Something like that. It's like, or Genghis Khan came through maybe in the 1420s and wiped it all out, and then after that, everything comes after that is what's still around okay from two more wow and i'm pretty sure he was like a descendant of the ruling class of uh genghis kongs like who he put in the power there okay i could be wrong about that but i'm pretty sure i'm not okay yeah (laughs) someone else can jamie (laughs) pull it up jamie yep um and so 
that was where we stopped uh, to take a break. Uh, Paul went back to China. No, Paul went back to Bishkek. Pat went back to China. And I went to Sicily for my cousin's wedding. Came back and started hoofing it. And just like, uh, there was just, from that point forward, we'd finally gotten out of the fields and it was just going to be desert to plateau step for a really, really long stretch. Um, and, uh, it was like the big middle section and Mm -hmm. we started just making massive progress. We started again on probably the day before new year's and then we just like booked it and we were averaging almost 35 K a day. So if not 35 K a day, 20 miles a day ish. Yeah. Yeah. 32 K is 20 miles. So Mm -hmm. 21, 22 uh, miles a day, including days we were resting. And so we were, we were traveling really hard, um, but we were crossing really big flat areas um, and just moving through. And so then we walked through the Kizilkum. We walked along the edge of the Kizilkum Desert, um, right by the river where it switches from the Kizilkum to the Karakum. So the Kizilkum is the red sands, and that's in Uzbekistan. And the Karakum is the black sands, which is in Tajikistan. Wow. And they're just separated by this tiny river, the Amudari. Well, large river. Um, cutting right through both of them. Yeah. Uh, and so we walked along the edge of the Kizilkum until we got to like this last little oasis where they, so like the languages are switching constantly all the okay. time too. So we're in Uzbekistan and they speak Uzbek in the, in the Fergana Valley and in the countryside. And then in the cities in the West, they all speak Tajik because uh, of Sum, uh, Simoni empire um and he was a tajik king and they're still really proud of him and so he uh all of those cities are tajik cities but all the countryside are uzbek wow farmers interesting yep and so you get into the city and then it's tajik uh which was the language that none of us had any experience in mm-hmm. um and then you're back in the countryside and it's uzbek and then we got to Khorizm, which is like a, an oasis after the kizakum and before the usert plateau and there they speak Khorizm. And so like uh, they no longer, it's a dialect of Uzbek and they just stopped understanding my Uzbek and I stopped understanding their <laughs> Uzbek as well. <laughs> um, and then we popped out of there into Karl Kalpakistan and there they speak Karl Kalpak, which is closer to Kazakh. Um, wow. Yeah. So you're just... Languages are just chaining constantly. Shifting. Yeah. And uh, my favorite Karl Kalpak word is Zunzun, Zunzun, which is like awesome. Zoom, zoom. Yeah. Cool. But luckily, they all, like the colonial language is Russian. And so, like, the whole time I'm able to speak Russian to communicate with all them. And, like, while we were in China, I was studying Russian through Pimsleur. And I had gone to Moscow during our first postponed period, well, Mm -hmm. during the planning stage, uh, and tried to learn as much Russian as I could, taking classes there. Yeah. and so that helps with the languages in general. And then like, a, yeah, the dialect, like the languages, language versus dialect is such a lumper splitter conversation as well. And so like the languages would change, but Kyrgyz and Kazakh are super similar to each other and Uzbek and Wayward are super similar to each other. And so it'd really just be switching from like one of those to the other of those. And uh, it'd take a little while and then the flip would happen. Although like Paul and Pat had a constant struggle not speaking Russian not knowing what language the words they were using were 
because they couldn't distinguish between Russian or a Turkic language. Right. And so they weren't ever sure if the words they were using were Russian or Turkic. So they didn't know if they transferred mm. from one country to the next. Oh, and like, no. usually the way I learned the local language was speaking the last local language yeah. and just having them correct me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, that sounds like a lot of mental just juggling and adapting yeah and it's only on your way out of any place that you like finally feel like you're comfortable with it Mm -hmm. and then it's only when it switches that you realize how well you had it a moment ago yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, and then forgot it yeah and so we got to crawl called pakistan and we just like kept hoofing it and it's just empty barren uh usert plateau um like one of the most boring landscapes any of us had ever been in just like flat nothingness and then on the far side there were like finally hills Mm. And then uh, we're coming off the Usert Plateau's massive canyon complex. And we were uh, planning on hanging out in those canyons and just like exploring. And all of our water drops, or not our water drops, our water sources, uh, which were just cafes that were supposed to be out there, like the three in a row, uh, weren't open or didn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And so we had to just like keep moving forward. And then we got to a truck stop and had internet and found out that borders were closing in front of us left and right. And everyone in that truck stop was coughing, uh, including the waitress, like holding her tray and like bringing things out and just being like, (laughs) 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 or like, we are exposed. (laughs) And it's right by the border of Iran. And Iran had been blowing up with, uh, Corona at this time. Um, and none of trade wasn't being stopped, just yeah. travel. So these people like most likely had coronavirus, the yeah. coffers. Absolutely. Um, wow. cause they're mainly truckers and they're mainly passing through the like hot spots. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kazakhstan at the time claimed to have none of the virus because they hadn't tested anyone. When did the virus get on your radar? Uh, probably a month before, not even two weeks before then, three weeks before then, because my cousin, my other cousin was also getting married Yeah. Uh, in Sicily. So this is late 2019. Yeah. So there was a, I went to the wedding in December Okay. in Sicily and then came back and then like, uh, you know, we have lots of connection to China. So China was having stuff happen. And so we knew about stuff from there. Mm-hmm. And then Italy started having stuff happen. Right. And uh, it's maybe like a one to two week period where all of a sudden like things started escalating really quickly for us at yeah. the, uh, in February. And uh, yeah. then we got to this truck stop and found out that Georgia had closed their border. And Azerbaijan was uh, not looking good. Yeah. In general, like they hadn't like all the cases that were showing up in Georgia had come through Azerbaijan mm-hmm. from Iran and like Azerbaijan wasn't really doing anything at the moment yet. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we get to this truck stop and everyone's coughing and we get Internet and we find out that Georgia's closed its border and, with Azerbaijan, which is our next country. We just have to like take a ferry from Kazakhstan to Azerbaijan. Yeah. And then we are going to cross the border into Georgia. And we had actually met an American on the road the week before who was driving around who had told us the ferry had been closed. Mm -hmm. Um, But it turned out the ferry had just been closed for vehicles and we were still good. And then we... uh, I think we just made the plan that either we were going to take the ferry just into Russia and just walk across Russia since the border was closed Mm -hmm. or 
get to Azerbaijan and then go straight north and just like to go through Russia and then pop back down into Georgia. And then that night I had gone to bed early while Paul and Pat were hanging out with truck drivers and they came in at like midnight and they're like, the Russian border is closed. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they were like, wow. All right. Well, we'll figure out what happens when we get to town. <laughs> yeah. And we start our way to town the next day and we get picked up by police immediately. Um, and they're very nervous because we're walking from China, even though we started walking from China in 2017. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're nervous nonetheless. And like, it doesn't make a difference that we've been in the region all this time. Yeah. Uh, we're just white foreigners and like travelers. And so clearly we're the issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, they end up escorting us like 14k to town mm-hmm. uh to speak to someone and like we get walking there with you or driving you they like leapfrogged us with their police car oh because they didn't want to they, they, they didn't want to get exposed yeah we uh many times were uh well i think out of like not wanting to walk 14k mainly. yeah okay yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like there were other times when we got tailed by police yeah uh while we were walking on the highway and they were in cars and it's just like so obvious when you're being tailed mm-hmm. by a car while you're walking yeah. because there's no way they can drive at a <laughs> a pace that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we spotted tails constantly, especially in China and Uzbekistan. And like usually like one time in China, we were just like, we hit a crossroads and we were trying to find a hotel and like, we're just like, all right, we'll just ask our tail. And like, <laughs> we went and we just like flagged them down and walked over to them and like they have their police shirts turned inside out, but they're wearing their police pants and they have their radios and everything. And we're like, Hey, can we stay in this town or do we have to go to that town? And they're like, we'll figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah, we just like, we just acknowledged that they were tailing us and like hoped that they would, you know, return the courtesy of like, yeah, this is obvious Mm -hmm. and we can be friendly about this. And that happened in Uzbekistan too. We like made a cop tailing us once and he was like, refused to answer and then switched out and the next guys were just like do you need any help all right we're gonna be with you they're like sweet thanks and like every time we walked by them they would be like are you good and we're like That's yeah funny. we're good <laughs> and like another time one was like we were separated and it was like passing messages between us of like where the other people were even mm. while he oh. was like the one tailing us <laughs> That's nice. yeah so they were the police in general were very friendly and very professional yeah across the board everywhere we interacted with them which was awesome um that's good yeah so when you're in uh you're in uzbekistan at this point and you're seeing people that are most likely infected with covid this is kazakhstan western kazakhstan okay western kazakhstan um are the locals worried about it like is there palpable fear in the the locals keep telling us that there's no coronavirus in kazakhstan so there's nothing to worry about okay because there's been no tests but everybody's sick but everyone's sick in that truck stop that we were at in that truck stop. Yeah. And so we get escorted to town and there's the medical person comes and is interviewing us and just asking us the same questions that they had already asked us three or four times. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, also, so you know, that truck stop, everyone there is sick and they did not care at all. Really, (laughs) They just wanted to make sure to document what us white foreigners were doing there. Um, and, uh, then we like tried to go find a hostel and the hostel we were looking for didn't exist. And so we accidentally paced back in front of the police station while trying to find another one. And the senior officer's out front and he's like, 
I'll, I'll send someone to show you. And he stops inside and doesn't come back out. And this young officer comes out and he's like, you cannot leave. Wow. And then we're like, oh, we don't need help. We just like need to be allowed to leave this police station yeah. so that we can go to our hotel. And they're like, nope, you have to stay here. He said you need to stay. And then a whole nother wave of cops comes up and does the same questioning routine. And we explain everything again. And we're like, can we go? And they're like, no, you need to wait for the translator. And I'm like, we don't need a translator. Me and you are communicating right now. I've answered all your questions. Why do we need a translator? And like, yeah. you need to wait for the translator. And I'm like, we're already communicating. Like we're, we've got this, like, come on, just hit me with your questions. Like I can answer them. Like we're speaking right now to each other. Right. <laughs> and, and they're like, Nope, we need to wait for the translator and just given us nothing. And so we wait for like probably another 40 minutes uh, out front of this place. It's probably already been like two or three hours uh, at that police station total that day mm-hmm. between the first detention and now the second one. Yeah. And the local English teacher pops up and he's like, sweet are you guys ready to go? And we're like, Oh, like we've been ready to go the whole time. (laughs) They said they had more questions. They're like, Nope, no, we're good. (laughs) So he was nice. And he walked us to a hotel (laughs) and, uh, uh, we actually had heard of him before from bikers going the other direction who had stayed with him, uh, from warm showers, uh, the website online for bikers. Oh, I see. Yeah. And then we, Decided to make a plan the next day uh, because, like, clearly, you know, the borders were closing and we were starting to be detained constantly. And it just, like, stopped feeling like we were going to be able to keep doing what we were going to do. And we were also, like, just the ethical question of just, like, choosing to just travel through all these areas and interact with strangers constantly Mm -hmm. uh, while, you know, a pandemic was afoot. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and we, the next morning woke up and called the Kazakhstan had established a flight hotline to figure things out and called them. And they told us that there were like three more days of flights. Oh, wow. And then the country was locking down their flights and the capitals were supposed to lock down as well. Yeah. Um, and so we scrambled to decide where we were all going and we took everything we could. Uh, we abandoned our trailers, um, with Bob, the English teacher. Nice. And, uh, just like, yeah, cut anything we couldn't take and fled Kazakhstan that night. We we got flights for the next morning out. Mm-hmm. Um, Vivian helped Paul and Pat get flights through Korea, and it was an ordeal because they decided they were going to go to China to be home. Yeah. And uh, I decided that I was going to go to Poland to be with my wife, who's Polish. Yeah. And, uh, and, Yeah, that day was chaos in general. And we finally got to the, we took a taxi to the large city nearby Mm -hmm. to get a flight out. And we were grabbing food on the way out. And we got detained again uh, out front. Oh, man. Like about to go to to the airport. (laughs) Yeah. Luckily, the flight was the next morning. I tried to, I tried to, uh, give them the perception that we needed to be at the airport sooner so that they might let us leave. But they were just like held us there and, uh, I w- we were all wearing bandanas as masks and they're mm-hmm. like, you need to take it off. And I'm like, no, there's a pandemic. Like I need to wear this. Yeah. And the dudes are just like, mm. and then like during the exchange, they went and bought masks. 
<laughs> and they're just like touching all of our stuff. Like oh, the police we had met before were super paranoid and super professional and like made us handle all our documents and just show them things and like didn't touch. And these guys were just like, uh, they stopped us for Corona and took zero per- Corona precautions. And like, we're standing there being interrogated and detained for like 45, 50 minutes in front of this place for buying food and being in public. Yeah. And we had already been turned down at the ho- hostel and they're like, nope, you can't be here quarantine. And they're just like, we refuse to give us any answers to anything. And like, cause we had been in the country for like a, almost a month at that point. It's mm-hmm. not like we were, you know, fresh arrivals. And before that month we had been in Uzbekistan. Right. Um, and so we were just like getting turned down left and right. And we are stuck outside this Donner shop and these cops are interrogating us again. And there's this dude who walks past who looks like death on foot. And he's just like coughing and straight pale and just looks horrible. And oh, the police God. just totally ignore him. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Cause they're focused on us because yeah. we're the issue. And uh, yeah, finally they let us go and we go to the airport and then like, uh, pay some small bribes to get our knives through after making a huge stink with the police um, about them trying to take our knives from Chust because our export permits for Uzbekistan were expired. Oh, wow. But we were in Kazakhstan, and that was my biggest argument, is, like, this export permit's not for this country. Like, mm-hmm. And I just, like, made a huge stink and just, like, refused to give in easily. And then, like, finally they just, like, let me pay a bribe to get all our knives through. How did that, like, did they ask for it or did you just, like, offer them money? So we, knives were not allowed into the airport in any form. Mm. Like, you couldn't check your bag. You couldn't get to the bag check-in with a knife. Wow, that's stricter than the U.S. It's, yeah. And uh, I argued that it was ridiculous and that we're going to check the bag and the bag's not going, the knives aren't going on the plane and that there's, like, no reason for us to take, them to take our knives. Mm -hmm. And... The first dude's just like, you want to go talk to the police? I'm like, yes. (laughs) So he brings us to a police officer and we're in his tiny office. And I'm just like insisting over and over that this is ridiculous. Like, you know, when he says the thing about the export permit, I'm like, now I know I've got this because that is the most BS excuse I've ever heard for why we can't have our knives that our Uzbek export permit is expired. Like we're in a different country. We're not even in Uzbekistan. Yeah. And so I just like, don't give in. And like, Paul's already ready to give in. And he's like, Tim, forget about it. Like, let's just move on. And I'm like, no way. And we've got like eight hours before our flight. So I'm not in any rush. You're ready. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And then finally, like we move off topic and me and the cop are just like hanging out and talking in Kazakh and Russian and just like, yeah, chilling. And then finally the security guard, the cop was just like, okay. And the security guard just like made a clear motion is like, you know, give him something yeah (laughs) and uh i like pulled out my wallet and pulled out all the money i had which was like six dollars and fifty cents on me at the moment in kazakh and uh the cop poured me a cup of tea and like i went to hand him the money and he just like motioned to put it down on the desk put it down on the desk drank the cup of tea thanked him very profusely and uh carried on (laughs) (laughs) yeah we never paid a bribe we didn't instigate okay yeah that's good yeah that's how how i like to brag (laughs) (laughs) it's ridiculous that that's like a a normal thing for people have traveled internationally 
It's a normal thing in a lot of the world. There's like the African uh, phrase of like, are you serious? And that means that like uh, you'll pay money. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Are you really serious? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And you went to Poland after that and you were done. Well, so it was still a venture getting out of there in general and uh, got on the flight the next morning and I was flying through Moscow and got to moscow and the board is just full of canceled flights and the airport is just packed with people fleeing oh no all over the world yeah and uh getting on in line to get on the plane the woman at there's like checking visas and kicking like every third person off the plane oh uh, for not having a resident visa in europe and at this point like i have our marriage paperwork and i have a photo of my wife's passport, uh-huh. but no visa to Europe. Right. And she's like, you can't get, this is all in Russian. And she's like, you can't get on the plane. You need the visa. And I'm like, I don't need the visa. I'm married. My wife, my wife is there. I, I don't need a visa. And she's like, you need a visa. And I'm like, I don't need a visa. And she's like, you need the visa. And just like back and forth and getting nowhere. But she's also dealing with everyone else she's kicking out at the same time. And finally, at some point, she just like turns to me and hands me my documents back and says nothing and turns to someone else and starts arguing with them about getting on and i just like didn't wait for an answer and just went right for the flight and got on and just like (laughs) i'm like please like let's taxi away like i before i get pulled off this flight (laughs) yeah oh my god yeah flew to germany got off the flight and uh like trained overnight to get to the border or yep trained over no trained throughout the day to get to the border of poland Mm mm-hmm um got to the border and poland had closed down its border of germany but germany had it so like you walk down a road and then you hit customs on one side of the bridge but not the other um and polish the polish were wonderful the entire time in their helpfulness throughout it and they were uh, like it was super easy to get in i just showed them my wife's paperwork and like an hour paperwork and uh took a train all night and then finally made it to warsaw and uh got put in a room to live in for 14 days. Wow. Uh, and the police checked in and like there was an app that you could check in uh, geographically and the police came maybe three or four times. Oh, to... wait. So were you at your wife's house or were you at like a designated quarantine room? We rented an Airbnb and I gave them the address of where I was going to be quarantining okay. and they checked that you were quarantined and that you wow. were isolated. Um, yeah. And Poland uh, locked down super fast and super early and never, like right now is when they're finally having their worst of it that's mm-hmm. uh, happening there in general. Okay. So. Wow. Uh, yeah. Stayed there for three months, uh, which was a uh, very quiet life. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, like most people living the lockdown life. Mm-hmm. And then uh, return. my wife got offered work again in Iceland at her old job. And uh, so she went there and I came back to America because she had started her green card process and I need to be a permanent resident of America Mm -hmm. to continue that. And so uh, we decided that I would pop back here to just like continue showing that America is my home. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, that brought us to meeting each other at Elements. And yeah, that's where I'm leaving from now. (laughs) Jeez. That's a long story. That's like it. That's a lot to go through. Yeah, it's like three years of my life, so. Yeah. What, this is a ridiculous question, but you went into it intentionally trying to extract some meaning and some lessons, and like, what have you pulled from that? Uh, 
definitely a lot. Mm, I hope I'm a lot more compassionate. Mm-hmm. I definitely live life a lot slower than I did back then. And I definitely value community far more than I did. Like mm. one of the reasons we got so sucked into Bishkek was there was such a strong sense of community there Yeah, uh, that like, and we had such a lacking of it being on the road. Like it was only each other mm-hmm. um, that like, that was a huge draw that was really hard to pull away from. Yeah. And uh, like one, uh, a huge notice in my life di- in a difference in general when I came back during our first break uh, was just like I struggle like I was living out of a car but I struggled to drive more than two hours a day mm-hmm. to get anywhere like uh, one week me my wife and one of my best friends we started in Fruita Colorado in Grand Junction area and the plan was to go to Zion and we spent the entire week driving across Utah to get from Grand Junction to Zion <laughs> <laughs> and like uh, my friend had said to my wife uh, that like the old Tim would have gotten there in the first day. Yeah. Uh, and then now I just like, yeah, want, like everywhere I am seems really cool. Yeah. Uh, Cause I've gotten used to enjoying wherever I am. And so yeah. it's really hard to drive to a different place when I'm already somewhere. So mm-hmm. I'd rather just be there. Wow. Which That's... has been a shift. Yeah. It feels like you probably shifted away from, I feel like what is one of the, dominant themes of our country and that's like getting to the next goal or at least our culture yeah at least geographically geographically yeah but i would argue that it's also like a life perspective as well as i think i think a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to be at the next point in their life rather than spending it in the place that they're at yeah i've definitely really learned to enjoy wherever i am that's quite a that's a, a very zen lesson yeah. yeah it took me took me two days to drive from denver to work <laughs> which is only a four-hour drive at least you gave or six hours no it took that. took three days it was a six-hour drive wow yeah okay well i think we should probably do this again at some point in the future because i don't think we've gotten everything out of the <laughs> way but i think right now we should probably end this and i really appreciate you coming on it's been really good talking about it. Yeah, it's been fun. It's always fun. There's so many stories from the trip, it's impossible to share them all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can talk about it for hours. So. so, yeah, it's a fun thing to share. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Of course. Okay.